Thanks for pressing play. What you're about to hear is one of the most inspiring, horrifying, life-affirming, disgusting, and yet deeply moving conversations you can hear. You see, our guest is Valerie Edmondson Bolanos, and she is the founder of an extraordinary NGO called Warrior Angels Rescue. She started her own NGO in the wake of Hurricane Maria. It was a Category 5 storm that devastated her home island of Puerto Rico back in 2017. And uh, what started off as an effort for her to rescue her own family all of a sudden grew into a much larger scale effort to evacuate at the time hundreds of medical patients uh, who were in deep jeopardy of losing their lives. Today, her 100% volunteer nonprofit steps in in crisis to save lives through evacuations and moving people into new, safer countries when governments won't and for whatever reason other NGOs can't or don't have the ability to. Now, since August of 2021, Warrior Angels Rescue has been evacuating girls, women, Dads and their families from the humanitarian crisis that is escalating in Afghanistan after the United States left. What you're about to hear is really one of the most inspiring mission-driven founders you can listen to. And um, I also hope um, it moves you, if you're in the United States, to reach out to your member of Congress and let them know um, that we need more help here with our longtime allies. Um, I also want you to, to know that our family and group of friends have made a significant six-figure-plus donation to help Valerie and Warrior Angels Rescue to save lives in Afghanistan. And if you are at all moved by today's dialogue and you're in a position to help, even in a small way, I would urge you to visit Warrior Angels Rescue dot org today you're listening to christopher lockett follow your different and now as joey ramone said hey ho let's go Well, Valerie, it sure is a tremendous pleasure to meet you in person. How are you? Thank you. You too. I'm good. I'm glad to hear that. Now, maybe let's just jump right in. Can you give me a perspective or paint a picture for me based on your knowledge what the people in Afghanistan, in Kabul and elsewhere are going through right now? Well, it's it's pretty horrific, which should come as no surprise, but it's been We've noticed just in the three months that we've been working there, um, it's just descended from from an absolutely apocalyptic situation into the depths of hell. It's just the the messages that we're receiving and the videos that we're receiving directly from the families that we're helping that are on our evacuation list are just... Um, horrifying. I've had nightmares and I'm not even living through it firsthand. It's, it's pretty horrible. So can you share with me some of the things that they are telling you about what's happening on the ground? You're going to start right off by making me tear up, huh? Um, I, 
Oh, it's it's everything from the Taliban soldiers and ISIS and Haqqani, um, all kinds of different terrorist organizations that are jockeying for power are rounding people up. They're pulling people from their homes in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night, and torturing them, beating them publicly, interrogating them, lining them up on the streets of residential communities, res residential neighborhoods, and um, asking about the whereabouts of some of the people on our list, for example, um, who are at risk of torture or kidnapping or death um, because they worked for the previous government, because they worked in close um, alliance with the U.S. forces and coalition forces. So even because they're just females with careers and academic ambitions and academic accomplishments, um, it, it isn't necessarily people who are linked to the U.S. Um, exclusively. It's also anyone who is, dares to fly in the face of how the Taliban wants society to run, and that includes girls and women who insist on going to school, or in one case just recently, about a week and a half ago, uh, one of our evacuees told us that they witnessed uh, a woman being shot in the middle of the street because she was wearing jeans. Wow. Um, and I'm just checking. It looks like there's just uh, a hair under, uh, is this right, 40 million people, 38, 39 million people in Afghanistan. Is that is that right, based on what you know? The original population, the current population. The, the, the total population, right. yeah. Yeah. And I would say, you know, the vast majority of those are under threat, if not direct threat by the Taliban and other terrorist organizations, then they're currently under threat um, of starvation and um, death from the winter. Yes. So there's roughly 40 million people. And to your point on the death from starvation, my understanding from talking to uh, Afghanis that I know is that the Taliban has been doing all sorts of things like, for example, um, bombing out the power grid so that uh, people don't have electricity right. and don't have internet access. Yes. Uh, my understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, that the monetary system for all practical purposes is shut down. So people's ability to get to money yep. is almost uh, de minimis. Is that also correct? Yes. From all reports that we have directly from our, our people on the ground and our evacuees, that's all of that is ha actually happening. Um, there's a cash shortage. There, you know, the economy is all but shut down entirely because people are in hiding. Um, really, one one aspect that I don't know if the U.S. media is covering is that the people who are at highest risk of death by the Taliban are people like you and me. It's families who have homes and careers and um, are middle middle to upper middle class families that they just from one day to the next had to walk away from their homes and the schools and friendships and just go into deep deep hiding in in some cases they've gone to stay with family members who are less conspicuous which usually means poor because 
as you mentioned, the Taliban is literally trying to take away power from the people who have even the slightest bit of power. And so much of power comes from, um, you know, being educated and being, um, having a profession. So they want to quash any potential uh, viable resistance to their takeover by, you know, not only literally taking away power and electricity and connectivity from everyone, but they're targeting middle-class families and upper-class families so that they can not stage a resistance. So everyone's gone into hiding, which means that most of the mechanisms that keep society going and keep the economy going are completely shut down. So, and, and I've been reading the reports, although you know way more than I do, of course, but if you look at it, there's no medical care. The hospital system is essentially shut. Is that the case to best of your knowledge? I would say it's not zero. It's not, there's not zero medical care, but it is, we've had to provide medical care to our evacuees who are too fearful of going to a hospital um, by connecting them with either Dari speaking um, doctors who have themselves fled or are even in hiding currently, but still willing to take care of patients pro bono or U.S. based volunteer doctors who are willing to do a telehealth session if that's applicable. So I'd say some hospitals are still running and, and some profession, medical professionals are still going to work in spite of the fact that they're not getting paid um, because they want to keep it running. And, and in some cases, those medical professionals would like to flee as well, but they're being kept by the Taliban because they're essential. Um, and they live in fear that as soon as they become, you know, as soon as they stop being indispensable, they'll just be killed. But right now they're being forced to come to work. And of course, um, this doesn't get reported in the mainstream media either, but we're in the middle of a global pandemic or we're somewhere with this global pandemic. Yeah. And so best I can tell, again, you know, way better than I do, but there doesn't appear to be any real data or any real understanding of what's happening with COVID spread and COVID deaths yeah. uh, in Afghanistan. Is that, is that accurate, Valerie? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see any evidence of, you know, any data being collected at this point anymore and, and of vaccine, there's no vaccine program to speak of anymore. There's no data being collected. People aren't, people aren't going to hospitals for the most part because they're, they're afraid they'll be killed. So yeah, I don't, I don't think any data is really coming out or being collected. I mean, that would require a functioning government, which is not what the Taliban has created. Right. So if, if I'm a person living in Kabul and I'm a person like you and I, who just happened to be in Kabul and maybe I'm a small business owner, uh, maybe I work for the U.S. government, maybe I'm a healthcare uh, professional of one sort or another, or, or, or any, any normal person in life, mm -hmm. I have very little access to medical care. Mm -hmm. I have diminishing supply of food. I have no money. Uh, chances are I don't have electricity, heat can be hard to come by. Is that intermittent electricity and heat? Yep. And of course it's winter. Yeah. And I'm hiding. 
I'm somewhere hiding. Sources of heat have in the last month become a very big priority for us. Um, we have a lot of families who are hiding in kind of abandoned neighborhoods in a sense, you know, maybe homes that had previously been bombed and are now sitting empty. And that's a really um, inconspicuous place to, to relocate and not be tracked down. So we have families living in that kind of situation where there are no windows. There might be gaping holes in the exterior walls of the home. And obviously there's no electricity or heat source. So we're delivering everything from coal to camping stove kind of things, um, oil for heating, oil for cooking, wood for burning. And then does, and in addition to that, we've been delivering blankets by the dozens um, to families. They're, they're literally huddling under the blankets because right. the temperatures have been dipping into the 20s now at night. And we have newborn babies living in these conditions and elderly living in these conditions. It's, it's, it's quite horrific. And, and people who, of course, are sick for one reason or another or maybe have COVID, right? Yep. We have a family that has um, two newborn babies in the family. You know, these are large families. They all live together. It's a different concept of what a family unit is from the West. It's not, you know, Westerners consider the nuclear family of parents and kids. Um, there, it's, you know, up to 30 people with all of the adult siblings living together with their children. So we have a family um, near Kabul, on the outskirts of Kabul, who are, um, they have two newborn babies and other young children, elderly, who don't have a heat source. They don't have baby formula. They don't have cash. They've run out of the ability to even pay for their cell phones. So that's, that's our link. If we lose cell phone connectivity, either because they can't charge their phone or because the signal is interrupted by bombings, that's it. We're, it's over for them. So we've, we've delivered solar chargers to certain families that are in danger of being disconnected. And we've also, we're working on sourcing satellite phones so that worst case scenario, if the Taliban succeeds in bombing the cell phone towers, uh, we can still have some link to the families that we need to get out. And they are bombing those towers. Is that correct? Yes. And I'm, I'm not, I can't tell you with certainty whether it's ISIS-K or Taliban or Haqqanis or some combination of, of those groups, but cell phone towers and electrical towers are being bombed. And this may be a weird question, but is their thinking essentially the more chaos we can create? And to your point, anything that can be sort of uh, viewed as, a, as an access to power, whether it's money, resources, communication, mm -hmm. what have you, they're trying to cut that out from under people. So we have chaos and we have no resources and we have no ability barely to even take care of ourselves. And therefore, if I can't eat, if, if my home is freezing because and I don't have a home, I'm living in some bombed out place and I got 
30 people cuddling under blankets trying to keep keep babies and grandparents and great-grandparents alive, uh, I'm probably not going to pick up an, an AK-47 and start putting together a resistance. Is that... Yes. "Quote unquote," the thinking that is absolutely the thinking. It's a it's a combination of chaos by design, as well as chaos by incompetence. You know, I think the leaders of the Taliban are attempting to establish what would be perceived as a legitimate government. Um, you know, they want to be recognized because it, their their success in taking over the country depends on that. But I don't, you know, but that's not, they're not setting up a sustainable government. They're trying to achieve that power by keeping women out of society completely, by, by taking away all power um, and food and communication. Yeah, I think they're interrupting the entirety of people's way of life. So it is interesting in that the majority of the refugees that are, um, highest risk are not highest risk under the Taliban are not poor families. Poor families are definitely at risk of starvation and of freezing to death this winter. So I don't mean to diminish the situation that they're in. It is extremely dire, but the middle to middle and upper class families are actually under those same threats now that they've left everything behind and have no access to their bank accounts. Plus they're being actively hunted. Awesome. Fucking A. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so thank you for painting the picture. It's what I understood it to be, but um, um, I really wanted to confirm it with you. Uh, One other, or at least a few other things, maybe, uh, I, like many uh, of us, have read horrifying reports of Afghani families selling children because they have no other mm-hmm. financial resources and they have no ability to take care of a child anymore. And so if they can get something for a child and that child potentially uh, will be taken care of in some way, yeah. they're making this horrible decision. Uh, how pro- How prevalent is this? Do you have any sense, Valerie? I don't think I could say that I have a sense of the scale of it. Um, I've seen, we, you know, our organization have, has seen examples of this firsthand, um, not just the forced sale. And I, well, I want to emphasize that the families that consider doing this uh, grapple with that incredibly um, painfully and are forced. They, they literally have a debt that's, that can't be satisfied. And, um, oftentimes it's a debt of maybe a a couple hundred dollars that is just insurmountable. It was that, that amount of debt is insurmountable before the Taliban takeover because of the wages that they were earning of 70 cents a day. So to that, you know, to someone earning that paying a debt of $500 is impossible. But it's also, you know, the debt collectors come, especially now because the people who were in a position to lend money so that someone could get medical care, let's say, or that someone could get access to a vehicle, something like that. Those debt collectors are now being hunted and they want, they need themselves a source of income to survive for their own families. So it's really a very complex 
picture and um, it's not just children who are being sold, but it's also women, grown women who, you know, we had, we had a, one of our families was a woman with five children and her husband who was on a manifest at the Kabul airport during the, during the U.S. evacuation period. They were there, they reported for their flight, this family of seven, the day of the, of their flight and were outside the Kabul airport when the two blasts occurred. The husband was killed. He was, you know, he was SIV. He was on that flight with his wife and children. Um, the wife, you know, the mom of five children, uh, witnessed it all and her, some of her children were injured in the blast. And so they went to a hospital fearing for their lives, fearing for her children's lives. And actually, I, I believe they left the hospital early because they were too terrified that they'd be hunted and um, tracked down. And they were on our list for evacuation after that, um, the mom and the five children. And right before we were set to evacuate that group, we were told that she couldn't join our evacuation because she now is the property of the husband's brother. Um, now that her husband passed as, as his widow, she belongs to um, her husband's family and her children belong to her husband's family. And they prohibited her from evacuating because of cultural considerations and also because they plan to sell her for $8,000 to a cousin or a different family member um, with her children. And, and within this system, you know, she had to make the choice. This mom had to make this choice between fleeing, not just the Taliban, but fleeing her husband's family, her own family, um, with five kids as a single mom or be sold to someone who will financially be responsible for her and her five kids. And I'm terrified to ask the question, but, um, what does it mean if I'm her and I get sold with my five children? What, what, what happens? I'm sure that varies to some extent. Um, you know, whether it's a, whether it's an abusive marriage or whether it's just the standard, you know, it's a different system and it's not, you know, to be, to be fair, it's not incredibly different from the system we had here just a couple hundred years ago. Right. If you look at the big picture. Um, so she's a slave. I mean, that's she, the bottom line is she's a fucking slave. She's expected to be the wife and mother of her own children, plus any other children that they may have. And um, it may not necessarily be abusive, but I think a lot of times it is. And so let me ask you another question that I'm sort of terrified to ask. But, um, uh, of course, I would hate to be a man in Kabul or in Afghanistan now mm -hmm. who's not. Well, I'd hate to be a man there, period. Mm -hmm. But everything I understand is the level of risk for women yeah. is even higher. So maybe tell me a little bit about what you know there, Valerie. Oh, it's um, it's a... It's a complete and utter exclusion from 
any freedom and any participation in society. Um, I think, I think sometimes the media gives the impression that it's, um, and I put this in air quotes, it's just access to education or just access to, uh, job opportunities, which in and of itself is horrific and incredibly unjust. But what's happening in Afghanistan is a complete and total annihilation of their participation in society. So um, I think I recently heard that there are two places, you know, according to Taliban beliefs and the, and the system that they're attempting to implement, um, there are two places for a woman in the grave or at home, I think. Grave or at home. And their only role is to produce children and raise children and serve the family, not just the men, serve the family, including the in-laws and the whole family. That's their choice. I shouldn't say those are their choices. That's their choice. They either comply with that or be killed. And it's down to the, down to the level of if they have to go out onto the streets of Afghanistan, they are required to wear full burqa, which is the head to toe um, covering where you can't see any skin whatsoever. It's even, you know, not even parts of your eyes are really seen. It's, it's a full head to toe covering um, with just a little screen for seeing and breathing. And my understanding from Noor, who was, um, you know, on this podcast a little while ago, is that uh, women in Afghanistan who uh, maybe have a, 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 a small bit of uh, skin show uh, at their feet, at their, at, you know, at whatever they're wearing on their feet in between their, their, maybe their ankle or something like that in the burqa, if, if that shows, if there's skin that shows, mm. they run the risk of being sort of instantly uh, stoned or beaten to death. Is that, is that now happening again? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, stone beaten, killed, shot like the the woman in Kabul a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, who was shot for wearing jeans. I think she had a burqa on, but she also had jeans, which are a Western symbol, and you know sneakers. Um, it, yeah, it's it it has to be complete and utter compliance with. Taliban standards. And, you know, I think that even people who are complying, even women who are willing to comply to stay alive until they can escape, they're not in a position to go shop for a new wardrobe right now or new footwear. <laughs> you know, they're not. Um, but, but the Taliban is so, so dead set against women, um, having these rights, the right to choose their clothing and the right to show their skin and the right to choose which shoes or pants they wear, um, that they, they want to send a really strong and clear message and intimidate every single girl and woman um, into complying. I remember when they first took over after the collapse, they said some things about that life would be different this time under the Taliban for women. Mm -hmm. uh, and it appears 
as we suspected at the time that it was complete intergalactic bullshit. And yeah. It, it, it really is upsetting for me. Um, it really is very upsetting as, as a product of a single mother and grew up, just have so many incredible women in my life. And so, and, you know, my doctor's a gal and I mean, just, you know, our industry is full of incredible women and I, I, it just, it seems so fucking, I mean, the whole thing is barbaric, but there's, there's, there's an added edge for women that is just, yeah, it's unfathomable uh, beyond comprehension for me. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's beyond comprehension. You're right. And it's, it's so counterproductive. I mean, to state the obvious, um, it, it's not just about it being unfair, which it is. Um, and as a woman and as a woman who has a daughter and, and a career, and, um, it's just, it's revolting. It's, it makes, it's, it's nauseating to see it actually happening. Um, but to see people living that way, um, to see, to see, especially young women, I think the part that has made it extremely palpable for me is seeing young women who for the past 20 years lived under a different way of life where they understood that they had rights and they had options and that the world was their oyster. And they are, they, and let me tell you, they embraced that. The girls who have grown up under U.S. occupation are driven and they have embraced their opportunity to be educated and they hold on to that dearly. And um, now that it's been taken away from them, it is literally like their oxygen is being taken away. They recognize it for what it is in a way that in a way that I think, you know, our kids, our American school children take it for granted because it is granted. It's, and they complain about having to go to school. My seven-year-old daughter included doesn't always want to go to school in the morning, but that's not the case for our evacuees. Our, our girls um, and young women, some of whom are escaping by themselves. Um, you know, they're, they're, we have young women 18 and over on our list who are, whose families said, you go, including, um, and they're, and they're staying behind. And that includes young women who are age 20, 21, who have left with their younger sisters and younger siblings and are planning on being, you know, single-handedly responsible for them. And they're, they're going to do it. These are strong, capable, accomplished girls and women, even the, even the minors, the girls that we've evacuated, um, that are school girls and university students and high school students, even middle school students are, are professional athletes. They're musicians, they're, um, science fair winners. They're, um, they're incredibly intelligent and and inspired and passionate about learning. Um, we have Fulbright scholars. We have, it's just, it's unbelievable the, the beauty and the strength that is currently being squashed and killed. It is, it is really hard to see that. Thank you for that. 
it's incredibly upsetting. <clears throat> now, if the, if you think this is unfair or you don't want to go there, then you just tell me. I, I am personally fucking angry at the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Secretary Blinken is a lying asshole going on major television saying that the U.S. is working to get not only Americans out, but these Afghanis who for 20 fucking years served us, worked with us, if I'm to understand correctly, a disproportionate amount of the economy in Kabul itself was supported by us with people either working directly for the United States or somehow benefiting from the U.S. being yeah. there, that the U.S. was a, a major, the major uh, driver of the economy. Yeah, they were holding it up. And of course, all of that is now gone. And um, you as an NGO are having to fulfill, and this is my opinion, on the promise that uh, Blinken and our federal government is failing to fulfill. And I'm furious about that. But I, I'm curious as to your perspective on, in particular, what the U.S. government is doing right now to help NGOs like yours uh, or to work on their own yeah. to um, help, uh, of course, Americans... But fucking A, these Afghanis are human beings and they're human beings who, like you said, we now have an entire generation who grew up uh, thinking that we were there for them and we're not. Yeah. And so I'm curious, what's your, and you know, don't say anything you don't want to say, but what's your sort of take on what the U.S. government is doing right now? Well, it is a really good question and it's, um, it's a sentiment that I've heard um, a lot in these efforts. and. As the founder of a nonprofit, I actually can't be political because then I would be in a separate category of a lobbying organization or something. So, and, and even aside from that constraint, um, I would say that what I have tried to do in running my organization, which I've, I founded a little over four years ago, and we've responded to natural disasters like hurricanes and mudslides, and we've also um, responded to political disasters or crises um, such as the international border shutdowns and um, and this Afghanistan. So, in in those situations, in the past four years, I've worked with the State Department um, both under a Republican president and a Democratic president. And so um, what I've always tried to do is just get the help to the people who need it, whether that's um, Puerto Rican people after Hurricane Maria or the people of Montecito and Santa Barbara during the mudslide and the 101 closure. We've just tried to say, let's cut through all of the red tape because the, the fact of the matter is that the US government, who regardless of who's at the helm, is constrained by an enormous amount of bureaucracy and red tape and um, approvals and all kinds of layers that need to happen that don't lend itself. It's not a small, nimble organization, it's enormous. and they can't respond as quickly as a lot of these situations require, in my opinion. Um, that was very kind. That was a very diplomatic answer. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. And I didn't want to. 
No, no, I get it. I get it. It's totally fine. Uh, Let's maybe move to uh, your efforts in Afghanistan. You've now successfully completed a few missions of getting people out, getting them to safety out of the country, and hopefully on on a way, on a pathway to either Canada or the United States. So could you tell me a little bit about the Afghani missions that you've already succeeded with? Sure. Yeah. So um, we we got started um, in Afghanistan in late August, um, you know, towards the close of the U.S.-led evacuation period. And, um, you know, it was clear that there were going to be many people left behind, um, some of whom aren't even on the list for U.S. help because they have no particular links, like schoolgirls. Um that don't have U.S. family members or weren't involved in any support for the coalition forces, so they're they're in as much danger in some in you know in some cases as someone who worked as an interpreter for a, a, the U.S. Air Force. Um, they're equally being hunted and uh, persecuted. A lot of tribes, like the Hazara tribe, is under extreme danger under the Taliban. Um, So we just decided we were going to focus on getting the highest risk people out. And we were asked to um, help with the evacuation of a particular school that had, you know, um, a school in Kabul that had a Hazara, Hazara community that needed to evacuate. We first identified the first thing we did in in trying to understand the landscape was to realize that the the key to this whole thing is securing safe harbor safe haven for refugees there you can't move forward it's different from most emergency evacuation situations where you know if it's a hurricane we we build the evacuation route as it's happening from beginning to end and this in this there, there are quite a few aspects to this evacuation that are kind of flipped on its head. Um, you know, we don't want media attention because that could jeopardize the lives of our, of the families that need it the most. Whereas in a normal situation, we media attention is a great tool to get help. So I would say um, the first group that got that we got out was uh, the we helped secure safe harbor in Ecuador. We asked about 30 some countries and Ecuador was the first to stand up and say, we'll take 300 people. And that was enough. That was the key. That was, um, that was everything. That's the holy grail in all of this is safe harbor, um, safe haven countries. And um, with that, with those 300 spots in Ecuador, we have been able to evacuate group one in mid-September they um we first took them into pakistan and um they have legal 30-day visas in pakistan just transit visas and from there we flew uh canada actually responded and was able to fly them directly to canada to resettle permanently with asylum in saskatoon so that's what happened with group one but as a side note i have had many I have had many a fun night in in Saskatoon. Have you really? Yeah, I'm originally from Canada. I was born and raised in Montreal, mm-hmm. and um, 
did business in Canada in my early life and, and traveled most of the country on business and did business in Saskatoon. And Saskatchewan is a gorgeous place. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah. Uh, huge farming heritage. Mm-hmm. And um, Saskatoon is a really fun, it's kind of got a bit of a cowboy farmery vibe. And the people could not be more hospitable. And as a native born Canadian, it warms my heart to know that, um, that the Canadian government was willing to take these 300 folks from Ecuador and provide them with asylum and bring them to a place that I know firsthand is a wonderful fucking place. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. I don't know a whole lot about Saskatoon, but I am curious to, to visit there now, but, um, I agree. The Canadian government has been amazing and very proactive and very welcoming of immigrants. They're in a position financially as a country where they can provide a year plus of resettlement um, services, housing, everything. And they even flew and COVID tested everyone and, you know, footed the bill for our entire first group. And right now our second group is currently in Islamabad. We have provided all of the COVID vaccinations and COVID testing and housing and everything in collaboration with the organization um, 30 Birds Foundation. And group two is is scheduled to move on. The majority of them will join the school community in in Saskatoon, but a small portion of them are have really strong U.S. cases, and they um, they will be traveling to Ecuador to to be processed because the U.S. the U.S. processing um, protocol is different from Canada. Canada will kind of quickly identify them, screen them, vet them, and accept them as refugees for asylum and then house them. The U.S. has a different approach where the in order to request evacuation and asylum or, or visas fr- from the U.S., um, you first have to evacuate yourself or find someone who can evacuate you to a third country. And then in that third country, you report to a U.S. embassy. And that's when the clock starts ticking on your application, basically. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. So let me say something. Yeah. Yeah, it's bullshit. L- let me just say something that probably you can't. It's fucking bullshit that the country that made this mess that put 40 million people in jeopardy and 5 million people in Kabul directly is hiding behind fucking red tape. And a country that didn't create this mess says, come on over and we'll set you up. There's something wrong in the fucking United States of America when that happens. Something very fucking wrong. And I'll just say it and something very right in Canada. And to your point, this bullshit was happening under both Republican and Democrat uh, presidents. Yeah. And I am a raging independent. Yeah. And I'm furious. I'm furious. Furious. I I won't argue with everything you just said um, at all. And it's, it is challenging to follow the protocol. In in fact, we currently have, you know, everything lined up in Ecuador. We have a school that has world-class 
organizers and administrators with this amazing curriculum. We have housing that's helping benefit and revive the tourism industry along the coast of Ecuador that was hit not only by the COVID pandemic, but also uh, an earthquake that they had, a 7.8 earthquake that they had um, five years ago, six years ago. And um, so it's a win-win-win for everyone. It's a win for the refugees who, instead of being stuck in a camp where they still don't have any educational or professional opportunities, they're actually free to um, start rebuilding their lives, even if it's temporary in Ecuador. They're rebuilding their lives. They're um, professionally and academically contributing to the fabric of the society. And and all of the services and programs that we have created for our Afghan community and our Afghan village are, we're opening them up to the local Ecuadorian community that's, that's welcoming them. And so it's a win for Ecuador's economy. It's a win for the Afghan refugees who have the dignity of living a free and um, fulfilling life. And then it's a win for the American taxpayer because it costs exactly $0 to the American taxpayer. It's all privately funded. Um, so I, you know, I'd love to see this model be replicated. Um, and I think that if, if we could do that and we're working, you know, we're working on setting similar things up in other countries that have expressed interests, both in Latin America and in the um, Middle Eastern, you know, the peninsula. Um, we are hoping that that will allow us and other grassroots organizations to help a lot more people than what the current capacity is under the the U.S. Um, procedure. And and how extraordinary, Valerie, that the Ecuadorian government would stand up and support these Afghan refugees yeah. when the fucking U.S. government won't. Ecuador has been amazing. They they have stood up in a way that, and in, in the midst of this humanitarian crisis that quite frankly has very little to do with them. There's there's not an Afghan community in Ecuador. Um, there, you know, there's a small, small, tiny Muslim community and Ecuador, just as a government, President Lasso really has stood up to do the right thing for these 300 people. And with those 300 spots, we've been able already to to rescue 425, you know, 20 some lives. They're already because they were rerouted to Canada. Those 300 spots that Ecuador gave, they've single handedly. Ecuador single handedly has saved 400 more than 400 people and counting. We, we're, we're geared up to evacuate another 300 um, soon in group three. So, so between group one, group two, and group three, you're roughly just a hair under a thousand people now, essentially 300 per group. Is that? It's been, it's been less. It's, I would say we're with group three, which is still in Afghanistan, unfortunately, waiting for evacuation, I would say about 700 something. And group two is still in Islamabad waiting to either go directly to Canada or go to Ecuador. Is that correct? Some are waiting to go to Canada, but the ones who have strong U.S. cases will be flying to South America soon. So we're you've gotten um, two groups of roughly 300 each out and you're looking to get a sec a third group out uh what's the status of group three of group three right now who you're trying to get out 
they're desperately waiting to be evacuated. And in order to do so, we need to clear a recent hurdle with Ecuador, where, um, as we understand it, we're still trying to get to the bottom of it, but it's a new requirement that, they, that the U.S. provide reassurance to them that they will take these 300 people. And of course, the U.S. isn't um, going to do that because they haven't processed their applications. And the way that the application process is built is that they have to arrive in Ecuador before their applications are even, you know, looked at. So we're trying to work through, we're, we're working with the U.S. State Department to try to give Ecuador some reassurance. We can't, you know, the U.S. can't guarantee that these these people in group two are going to come to the u.s within 12 months but you know we're we're trying to be creative and finding ways of reassurance reassuring ecuador that they won't overstay their visa that they'll be very well cared for during those 12 months and they'll be contributing to society and that at the end of the 12 months if the u.s has yet to finish processing their applications or maybe they have processed their applications and declined, um, that's always a possibility, then we want to make sure that there's a fourth country as backup that we can, um, you know, with, that we can reassure Ecuador at, at the 12 month mark, if anyone is still left in your country, we, we've got them covered, you know, Rwanda or some other country has, ex has stated um, officially that they'll take them at that point. So, is Canada saying they'll potentially take more from you? Um, they are open to taking the group, the bulk of group two, but we haven't gotten the final paperwork for that yet. Um, and, you know, they've publicly stated that they're taking 40,000 Afghan refugees, which is enormous and incredibly um, helpful. Um, there's an enormous backlog, of course. So, we um, we want to continue working with Canada to make sure that they they continue to take our people, the people on our list. And Valerie, where, where's the EU in all of this? And where's Great Britain? And I mean, where's France? And where's Spain? And et cetera. I don't know that I have that much insight into that. Um, maybe simply because I know that they each have their own um, Afghan refugee programs. They are working on. Um, a lot of resettlements, um, and I think to, to varying degrees, um, Spain, the UK, Austria, a lot of a lot of the EU countries are taking Afghan refugees. We just don't have that many established relationships with those governments from prior rescue efforts, so we we don't have that much insight into it. Got it. Yeah. Now, my understanding, Valerie, is. Roughly $10,000 can um, save somebody. That is to say, with $10,000, uh, the angels can get them out of Afghanistan, get them staged somewhere, and, and get all this rolling. So essentially, with $10,000, mm -hmm. uh, and if this is overly traumatic, you tell me, but with $10,000, rough and tough, you can save an Afghan life. Yeah, we can save their life and keep them very... Um, well cared for, uh, for lack of a better word, we for ten thousand dollars we can save their life and extract them from Afghanistan, fly them to 
a safe haven country and keep them uh, housed, fed, educated, and other um, services, emotional and mental and medical health support, um, the whole, everything that you would need in order to not just survive for a year, but but thrive, truly thrive. We're, we're trying to build this to where they can heal from the incredible traumas that they've been experiencing and um, and also turn it into a positive, just heal from it with art therapy and um, enrichment activities for the children and um, field trips to archeological digs and uh, marine bio trips. And I mean, we, we want it to be a beautiful experience for them. There's no reason for it to be anything less than that given what they've all lived through. So, um, yeah, the $10,000 covers all of that. So when I write you a check for $10,000, I have saved someone's life and enabled you to set them up for success going forward. Yeah. It's that simple. That's the average. Yep. That's the average cost um, per person to, to make this happen. And if I'm one of these folks in group three, who's waiting to get out now, um, and again, don't tell me things that you can't say because uh, while I doubt the Taliban is listening to this podcast, who the fuck knows? We are downloaded in 180 countries or 190 countries. Um, but if I'm one of those people in group three that you are currently working very, very hard right now to get out, mm-hmm. what happens if I'm, in, if I'm a family in Kabul and I get all my papers, I do all the things that you need me to do, and there's a thumbs up, and we say, okay, we're getting you out. Mm-hmm. What happens the minute you say go? Okay. So the minute we have safe harbor from a country, we produce, we submit that document to a transit country. We need 30 days to get people vaccinated and situated outside of Afghanistan in a more local, you know, regional country. I won't give specifics just so that, yeah. Um, but a, a, a neighboring country will act as the transit country where we process them and get them ready for onward travel, fully vaccinated and tested for COVID. And then from there, we fly them in a private charter. Um, and that's part of, that's a big bulk of the expense is the private charter. Um, and that's necessary because of their refugee status and visas in, you know, commercial air, air travel just doesn't work for a lot of them, not everyone has passports, not everyone has um, visas for the in-between countries. So right. um, we get them to their final destination. And and from there, um, we set them up in housing, we get them integrated into society and and we get them enrolled in our school, our school program and and we continue to support them for the full year. We have four pro bono law offices, um, immigration law firms that are willing to help our groups um, free of charge to apply, not just for SIV, P1, P2, and humanitarian parole, but um, you know the pro bono lawyers are helping them through those processes and trying to expedite 
but also we have other pathways to entry into the U.S. that we have teams of volunteers. Our, our entire organization is 100% volunteer. Nobody's paid a salary. So um, everyone is just finding boarding school opportunities, exchange programs at, at high schools and universities, even, um, even professional career opportunities, um, companies that are willing to st step up and say, well, with, with this influx of um, Afghan refugees into our own communities throughout the United States, we need someone, we need to hire someone who can um, help with that. Valerie, is there, is there, are there any other things that you want to touch on before we wrap? I'd just like to say that I'm grateful for the support of my team, first and foremost, is amazing. They've moved mountains to make this happen, and they have full-time jobs. They have families and children of their own that they've taken time away from to, to work on behalf of these families. Um, I'm so grateful to them. I'm so grateful to Ecuador and to um, other safe haven countries that are considering opening their doors to our, to our lists. Um, I'm grateful to the families that have um, put their trust in us in a really scary situation where they don't know who to trust. And, um, and I'm grateful to donors and people like you who are willing to help us create more awareness of ways that people can help. Because what I've, what I've noticed in every emergency situation that we've responded to is that there is, there is an overwhelming amount of people who need help that the media doesn't always cover. But there is an equally overwhelming amount of people who want to help and just don't know how. And they don't know whether their money will go towards the actual thing that they intend for it to do. Or, or they don't they can donate money, but they can donate their time. And so what the role we've always played is just connecting the help with the needs. And um, we're incredibly grateful to the people who've donated and the corporations who've donated and to our volunteers who donate their time. Um, so that's just one, that's one thing I, I want to make sure is said. It's really beautiful to witness. There are angels on this earth, aren't there? There are. There are. Well, Valerie, sorry, I'm tearing up a little bit. Um, you know, as somebody who, uh, ever since I was a little boy, for whatever reason, has felt um, deeply affected by what happens in the world. Um, and as somebody who tries to have an understanding that the only difference between you and I and the women, children, and men in that country who are suffering right now is we were born where we were born and they were born where they were born. Absolutely. There's no person ever who's ever lived on planet earth that chose their parents and chose their country. Mm -hmm. And that's the only difference between them and us. It's yeah. just sheer luck. Yeah. And so, um, I'm greatly saddened and angered by this situation. I'm furious at the U.S. government. And just personally, I want to say to you, uh, if our government won't use our tax dollars to do what's right, I also am grateful to the angels 
who will. And you're leading that band of angels. And so, Valerie, from the bottom of my heart, God bless you. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. That means a lot. Well, there she is, Valerie Edmondson Bolanos. And if you were at all moved by today's dialogue, I would ask you to help if you can. Uh, even a small way, you can visit warriorangelsrescue.org. That's warriorangelsrescue.org today. And um, if you have somebody in your life who you think would be inspired by this dialogue with Valerie, please share it with them now. Your podcast app has a uh, share button uh, on it somewhere, hopefully in a fairly visible place, depending on which podcast player you're using. All right. We would like to thank you. I want you to know how much we appreciate around here that you are with us. Uh, It means the world to us. Uh, We have noticed um, an increase lately in your shares and uh, engagement with us and so forth and so on. And uh, everybody here wants to tell you, including me, of course, how much we appreciate you. All right. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Please consult your mystic, lawyer, mother, psychologist, and of course, category designer before acting on any of today's information. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. And Jason has a a great new Substack newsletter out. So go to Substack.com and search for The Pivoteer. It's all about taking on... uh, New opportunities in life, pivoting in life, new careers, new jobs, and all that good stuff. Jason DeFilippo, the pivoteer. Sarah Knox and Jamie Jane lead our uh, legendary technical team around here. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ Bobis uh, does web development for us, and so does his brother, EX Bobis. Uh, Cedric Barros does graphic design and web development as well. Uh, Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. And the best gift you can give someone, especially this time of year when the roads start to get crowded, is to get out of the passing lane. Don't forget to tip your wait staff on the way out. Also want to say a big thank you to all of our healthcare heroes and all of our law enforcement and fire heroes. Thank you so much. Also, um, you should know, your spouse just texted and said, it's okay. You can go ahead and make a donation to Warrior Angels Rescue right now. <laughs> Don't forget, Tom Waits was right. Candy Dandy, thank you so much. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Scott Omelonic, editor of Inc. Magazine. Sorry, Scotty, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we hang out again, follow your different.